Well, I'm here to do the scripture reading for this morning as well. Um, but I'm so excited about this. We get to renew the building. We get to put vision and uh, ministry together and, uh, and make things uh, great for the future generations. So if you can uh, read along with me, or maybe it's going to be up on the screen, I'm not sure, but I'm reading from uh, Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who the spirit, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. By his resurrection from, our de- from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we, we received grace. The apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith from his, for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank you, God, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, in my wit- is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts that, I make, you, that make you strong, that is that you, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles, I am obliged both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel all to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, of the, for in the, gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. But as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. Well, I just want to say the last five weeks at Hillcrest in our Sunday morning services have been amazing. Amazing. Uh, let me just recap. If you missed them, uh, I, would go, I would encourage you to go back any one of these weeks and just uh, check out what happened. But the first week, we had a, a whole series called Open Doors. And the first week, we had Benji and Jessica McNaughton from California, and they had uh, recorded a special message just for us. It was pure encouragement, all about adopting our city in prayer and beginning to bless the city and, uh, and especially in our spheres of influence, praying for people and blessing them. It was awesome. The next week, I was talking about spending time with people. And I didn't know this in advance, but the ultimate example of spending time with people was going to show up on my, my doorstep with that message. Um, so I was talking about, you know, spend time with people. Don't withdraw. Like, you, you need to build relationships so that you can build a trusting platform to be able to share uh, the good stuff about God. And, and I had with me that morning, I had four uh, college students who had committed themselves to go to um, North Africa, spend three years learning language uh, so that they could reach people that they didn't know. Talk about the ultimate example of spending time 
spending time. Young adults saying, We're gonna, I'm going to give three years of my life so that I could possibly take the good news about Jesus to people who don't know. I was just like in awe of uh, what God was doing in them, and it was so, it was just exciting. The next week we have Dade Marr from Assiniboia. We were talking about, you know, meeting needs, meeting people's needs. And, of course, we look to meet people's needs in our spheres of influence naturally. You know, if there's uh, something you need to lend them or give them or help them or some advice or wisdom or something you've got, great. But there's so many needs that we can't meet. The only thing we have to offer is supernatural, which is good because it leads us into praying for those people in our spheres of influence. And we had Dave Marr, who he has uh, lived it. He, he lives the life of when he, he sees a physical uh, a need that he can't meet, he prays, especially for healing. And so there's a real emphasis that morning on prayer for healing. And I thought that was a real shot in the arm for our faith to hear so many stories from him of how, how God has just in everyday life uh, used him to heal. And then we had a time where we prayed for each other in that regard as well. Then the next week we had Farmers Mike and Royce up. And uh, that was incredible. Uh, just at the end of the service, it was just clear to me, you know, God can heal. He can deliver. He can save. He can do whatever he wants to do. And uh, how many of you were there for that service and got pretty encouraged by it, right? That was pretty amazing. Um, so it's just great. That was our sharing Jesus week. And then Easter happened. And um, Good Friday, um, I, got, uh, I, got, um, I got pretty sick. I got pretty sick. Um, you know, RSV with the side order, side order of pink eye is what I had. That was mine. And uh, so I had to throw a couple assignments out. One on Good Friday, Chris Drennan stepped up and led communion as the whole city gathered here for Good Friday, did an amazing job. And then I have to commend Kurt because he had to take my uh, COVID or whatever. It wasn't COVID, but it was foggy notes that I handed him, basically. And he turned them into an amazing Easter sermon on, on the Sunday. But the thing that probably just really uh, hit me in a very special way on the Sunday morning was we had three teenage girls who shared their spiritual stories, how they had come to Christ. And I think that was one of the most spiritually moving moments, even in the five weeks, just to hear them talk about what God had done. So it's just incredible stuff. So many voices, so many people from our church, from outside the church. Great faith encouragement. If you missed it, go back. Catch the weeks you didn't miss. They're all good. They're all very, very, very good. Well, today, I'm excited to launch uh, our new uh, speaking series, and um, the title for the series is uh, one you might have heard of before, but the title is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Well, <laughs> is there more? Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe we should take a vote whether people think this is good, bad, or ugly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's give Judah a hand.
All right. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, what are we talking about, the good, the bad, and the ugly? We're, ta- we're actually going into the book of Romans, and that's a, a strange subtitle that we're using for the good and the bad and the ugly, but it can be used a couple ways. Um, when I think of the good and the bad and the ugly in Romans, first, one way it could be viewed as is the audiences of Romans uh, or the, the people groups identified in Romans from a Jewish perspective. So if you're a good religious Jewish person, you might see yourself as the good. You might see people who are not Jewish or Gentiles would be the term that would be used in those days as, or you see yourself as good. You see the Gentiles as bad. And then Paul is talking about uh, reaching out to people in the farthest reaches of the world at the time, like to all, all the way to Spain. And maybe uh, you think of the Spains as uh, being... Um, the ugly, you know, the, the barbarians, those people, the unwashed pagans. I don't know how, uh, what terminology, but uh, it could be you think about the three different groups, right? That, and, and, and this is a very interesting letter, the book of Romans. Paul writes all these letters to encourage churches, but he's writing a lot of them in response to something that he knows, right? Um, or not even just that he knows. Something they've either written to him or because he... Uh, established most of these churches, had a hand in establishing, he, he knows the people really intimately. So he doesn't have to say any, everything in his letters. He just sort of jumps into that area of concern and begins to address it. But Romans is different. He has never been to Rome. And even though there's a Christian church that is established there, he doesn't have personal relationship with many of them. He maybe has met one or two, but the general gist of it is that it's almost like he's writing him the letter, and he has to sort of introduce who he is, what he believes, and he's got, a, he's got an agenda. And this is his agenda. God has put on his heart to go to Spain. He really, he's, he's, he considers himself the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, not just considers himself, God has made him that. And so he wants everywhere where there aren't, the, the message has not yet gone beyond the Jewish people. He wants to go. And so he wants to go to Spain. And he talks about it, that in um, chapter 15. He wants to go to Spain. But he wants to use the, Rome, uh, the church in Rome as his launching base. So he wants to go to Rome first, which he's never been to. He wants to partner with this church that he's writing to. And then he wants to go further into, uh, to Spain. So it could be the three groups the good, bad, and the ugly, the Jews and the Gentiles and the, and the Spaniards or, the, the, or those who go even further into, into Europe. The other way I, I think of it as the good, bad, and the ugly is sort of how these first three chapters roll out. The first three chapters are really important foundational chapters in the book of Romans. And this first one that I'm dealing with, is it's mostly good, right? I'm going to talk about mostly good stuff, right? But um, next week when Pastor Kurt shares, uh, he, got the, he got the bad one, <laughs> right? He gets where it's mostly bad. And then it gets worse. It gets ugly. Right? So it's, even in these first three chapters of Romans, it sort of is the good and then the bad. And then, the, hey, it's even worse than you thought it was. And I won't steal all the thunder from that. But that's sort of a little bit why we've chosen this title, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's also, I want to really encourage you that it's not 
there is, Romans is full of hope. It's full of hope for everyone. It's full of hope for the good and the bad and also the ugly. So, anyhow, that's sort of the, the, the fun title that we've attached to it. But let me just walk through it. Paul, the, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, the Holy Scripture, regarding his son, who as through his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So just pause there. We just celebrated the resurrection last week, Easter Sunday, right? So Jesus was talking about before he died he talked about what his death would mean he talked about the things he was there to do what god why he was he came incarnate as a man to to live a sinless life and then be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf he talked about that talked about that talked about it but when he died people didn't go his followers didn't go woohoo that's awesome jesus said he was going to die and now he died no they were in despair because it wasn't until he rose from the dead that they knew he was the Son of God. That was the confirmation that he was the Son of God. So to say that he and the Father were one and that, you know, all those different things that he would be teaching them, those things weren't confirmed. The resurrection was the confirmation. The resurrection was the moment where it was like, everything he said is true. Now, his death is the point where we, we look to his death. Kurt said this last week, a great quote. When the New Testament writers would write about Jesus' death, or write about the love of God, they, write, they talked about his death on the cross. But when they talked about the power of God, they talked about the resurrection. And so that's why the resurrection means so much to us as Christians. It's the confirmation that everything he promised, that everything he said he, was, he came to do, came true. We needed the resurrection. And so... Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And what Paul is endeavoring to do in the book of Romans is to lay out this gospel. What is he preaching? What's this this joyous news about how God desires to save people? What are the fine details of it? And, and how do those details relate to the different groups? How does it relate to if I'm a, uh, a very uh, religious Jew? Or if I'm a Gentile and I didn't grow up with any of the Jewish traditions or the Jewish law or any of those different things. And so Paul's trying to lay out in such a way that they can understand it. And he intends for the gospel to be the unifying factor to create this unified church. But the church as it is is not that unified, and we're going to, we'll see a little bit more of that. I've got a video for you this morning, and it's, it's about 10 minutes, and I really liked it. I, I always think when you start a book of the Bible, it's good to have something you can visualize so you can understand the context a little bit, and I really like this one. Now, it's, it's done by an, uh, uh, an American church. What they did was they said, well, we'll get, we'll get actors to play the parts of the Jews and the Gentiles because the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he said, we'll get them actors to play parts. So they got uh, the black actors in the church to play the Jews. And then they got the white actors in the church to play the Gentiles. It's a very interesting take on it. So just to let you know that, if you see um, black people and white people, re- the, the black people are, are representing the Jews and the white people are representing the Gentiles. And how they had very different 
sort of ways that they saw things, and there was potential for great division in the Roman church, and how Paul sought by the gospel to bring unity so this church could be one and also that they could have a clear understanding of what the good news of, of God really was. So anyhow, we'll watch this video, and then I'll come back. Paul the Apostle wrote many remarkable counsels in his epistle to the Christians in Rome's capital. But the story of why Paul wrote Romans gives meaning and life to this famous piece of parcel. For one of the opening lines, which helps marshal in the story of this theological colossal says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is salvation to the Jew first, but also the Gentile. You see, Paul wrote Romans to address the rising tension that had arisen among Rome's Christians. And that tension was around the question, how are Gentiles to be included in Jewish tradition? And this tension arose because as the church in Rome began to grow, the emperor Claudius heard of some Jews who started following a man called Christus. So this Roman emperor, not knowing the difference between Jews and Christians, issued an edict which ordered the removal of all Jewish people from Rome's populace. And so the Jews left Rome and spread among countries and continents to make a new home away from Roman opulence. This removal left synagogues, house churches, and new Roman believers without Jewish tradition, knowledge, or any of their teachers. But after Claudius died, and after the edict expired, many of Abraham's descendants started to return to Rome's metropolis. And as they did this, as both Jewish and Gentile Christians who had recently put their faith in Jesus started to meet together, they realized that the way they viewed the Old Testament law was full of differences. Because when the Jews saw what they thought to be the Gentiles' neglectful attitude toward the law, many of them chose to conclude that there could be no way God would include these Gentiles in God's chosen people, the Jews. But in Romans, Paul solves this confusion by writing that everyone is a lawbreaker. There are no exclusions. Both Gentile and Jew have broken God's commands and need absolution. For while the Gentiles may have neglected the law, the Jews were just as guilty. For though they obeyed some of its traditions, like all people, they did not keep it perfectly. But it wasn't only that the Gentiles seemed to turn aside from the law's commands. It was also that they were not circumcised like their forefather, Abraham. But in Romans, Paul explains that Abraham was not saved by works, but by faith. For long before he was circumcised, God declared him righteous for believing in the promises he made. 
But even if both Jews and Gentiles break the law, even if they both transgress, even if circumcision isn't necessary for God to call someone blessed, surely the Gentiles still need the law to keep their behavior in check. For without it, won't they just break God's commands and expect his grace to do the rest? But in Romans, Paul answers this expected protest by explaining that all the law can do is tell you what sin is. It cannot make you new. But when anyone, whether Gentile or Jew, believes the good news, they are made into people who can actually do what the law commands them to do. But the Jews would surely wonder, if the Gentiles are saved apart from the law, and if it's faith, not birth or circumcision that makes them a child of Abraham, then had God simply replaced them? What about the covenant God made with Israel? Did God break his promise to save them? But in Romans, Paul answers by saying that birthright has never been the only qualification. For before either of Abraham's twin grandsons were born, God made a separation. God chose Jacob, but said Esau I hated, to show that no one, not even the Jews, the direct descendants of Abraham, deserve his grace. So if God chose Jacob, he could choose to include the Gentiles all the same. But this does not give the Gentiles any room to boast. For if God chose to include them in his fold, while he has cut off many Jews who received the promises of old, then Gentiles should hold fast to this faith of which they've been made heirs. They must stop the idolatrous practices of their culture in which they are ensnared. For if God did not spare Israel when they disobeyed, neither will Gentiles in their disbelief be spared. The church in Rome was torn in two between the Gentiles who wanted freedom from the law and the insistence that it be kept by the Jews, which would have made the way Paul chose to conclude his letter all the more difficult for the Roman Christians to live by. For the way Romans was written, the way its arguments were designed, end with a call to action on both sides of the battle lines. In Romans, Paul tells both Jews and Gentiles alike to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, to not think along their former divides, but to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. They are to be one with each other, though they are full of differences. The strong are to help the weak by giving up their privileges. They are to seek peace with those they see as enemies and honor each other despite backgrounds or ethnicities. But how could those with so much enmity be expected to find such reconciliation and unity? Well, in Romans, Paul constantly points to the key. For not only was Paul unashamed to name what made the Jews and Gentiles hostile, he was also not ashamed to proclaim the name of Jesus and his gospel. 
for the only reason it could be good news that both Gentile and Jew had broken God's law is because Jesus had come as their substitute. He picked up the punishments they had earned and obeyed all the laws so both Jew and Gentile could be made equal at the foot of the cross. You see, they were not equal because they shared Abraham's name, but because they shared Abraham's faith. For when Abraham looked forward to the descendant God promised who would bless all nations with his light, he didn't know his name, but he was putting his faith in Christ. So when anyone trusts Jesus, no matter their background or birthright, they are brought by grace into Abraham's family line. For just as God chose to give Jacob his blessing over Esau, though he did not deserve to receive it, Jesus saves us, not because we deserve it, but because we need it. It is only because the gospel is so good that Paul could command the Romans to such a hard sacrifice. They could only be one with each other because they are one in the body of Christ. They could only love one another because of how Jesus loved them when he laid down his life. And so the tension in Romans was solved, but not by everyone putting aside their cultures and differences, but by seeing how Jesus fulfilled the law and its traditions. For the law isn't just a Jewish composition, nor is it an old rule book that deserves Gentile opposition. It is a story that points to Jesus. Its ethnicity is inherently Christian. That is the point of Romans, that the law wasn't given for one group, but to show all nations their need for the gospel. All are one through faith in Christ. So wrote Paul, the apostle. Hey, I'm David with Spoken Gospel. Thank you so much for watching our introduction to the book of Romans. Right. Well, I hope that, I mean, Romans is a complicated book, but I hope that gives you at least some of the context to help you, and maybe it'll give you a visual to, to help you going forward. I want to I zoom through just this first chapter, and then I'm not going to linger very long on, on much of it. Uh, verse 5 is where we were reading, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So all the Gentiles, and some of the other translations, it talks about all the nations. So the, Lord, the, the call to respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ is for all nations. It's not, a, it's not a Jewish thing. It's not a Gentile thing. It's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It's, not, it's all the nations uh, of the world that it's a call to. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. So Paul is he's thinking of Rome and Spain. He wants to see a work happen in Rome, in that church, a work of unity, but also a work of the gospel, that there'd be a harvest among them. So he wants that to happen. And, but his, he, he he's, wants to go and establish that so he can launch off and as well and go on to see a gospel work among the people in Spain. And this is, uh, there's three lines in here that just hit me, and they've hit me for years, and I've thought about them for many years. And I just want to read them to you in these last few verses. Verse 14, I am obligated, both the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. I'm obligated. I am obligated. It's, it's a way of saying I'm responsible. I mean, if, if Christ has taken you from an empty way of living, or maybe you were a young child when you gave your life to Christ like I was, you, you totally skipped so many years of, of emptiness. You've always sort of known he's there for you. You've been rich spiritually in that regard when others don't have that. There's an obligation that comes with that, that comes with having um, the privilege of knowing God. And so, uh, as God has blessed us, he desires for us to be a blessing. So we're obligated to those who don't know. Those who don't know, those who don't have, those who haven't come alive in Christ. Greeks and non-Greeks, other translations say uh, different, civilized and uncivilized, uh, you know, Greeks and barbarians, different terminology, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm obligated. There's a responsibility that we carry. We've been given an incredible uh, gift, the gift of Um, salvation, the gift of life with Christ. And then the second part is, that is why I'm so eager. So I'm obligated, but I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm so eager to preach the gospel. I'm so excited. I really want to do this. I want to see people come alive. I want this message to be communicated. I'm eager you know what, I, I pray for a growing eagerness in me, and I pray for a growing eagerness in us. And you know what, I think we're seeing a growing eagerness. Like when I look back at um, um, just some of the last few years, I've seen in, in some of you a growing eagerness to share the gospel. I mean, and I don't know all your stories, so I don't know all the ones you're growing in eagerness with the gospel that you haven't told me, or I just don't know your story. But from the few that I've chatted with and had conversations with over the last few years, I know some of you have really grown in your eagerness to share the gospel, and I'm excited about that. And then verse 16's got the last line that I think is so potent. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And, you know, sometimes um, we don't understand the reality of, 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 of what we have, the potency of what we have. I think sometimes we think, well, you know, if that person became a Christian, their life would get 1% better. I mean, it's almost blasphemous to say. But no, the transformation that God brings to a life is enormous. It's enormous. It's enormous. It's not just 1%. It's way, 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 way better by a magnitude of, you know, the transformation he can bring is amazing. And we have, we have that to share. You know, I, just, just in case all this talk about gospel, these people going, I'm not sure if I totally understand what that is what the gospel is. I've been reading a great little book on evangelism. Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus by Max Stiles. And he's got a nice little, a nice little write-up here. It's not the, you know, the perfect one. It's just this is a great ex- explanation of the gospel. Let me just read you what he wrote. He says, Our Creator God is holy, just, and loving. We are His people, made in His image. Though we were once in fellowship with God and loved by Him, We are now cut off from him. That separation of God and his people started with a rebellion by our ancestors. At root, the rebellion was our choice not to to believe God and to attempt to make ourselves God instead. That treasonous rebellion failed, and the judgment was eternal death. Horribly, the sin of rebellion is passed on from generation to generation as a curse. All people inherit both the sin and the judgment Our sin nature makes it impossible for anyone to earn his way back to God. But even though we are unable to buy or earn our way out of the curse, God in his love provided a way of escape back to a loving, forgiven relationship with him. The entire Bible prophesies, records, and explains the coming of a Savior to do that. God's Son, Jesus. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, lived on earth as a miracle worker and a teacher of God's ways. He lived a perfect life and became the perfect sacrifice to ransom us from the curse of sin and death. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins through his death on the cross. He rose from the grave, conquering death and proving that what he said was true. Through his death, he purchased the right to offer us forgiveness from sin and the right for any who would turn to him to become children of God. Anyone who hears this message of good news and responds to Jesus will not be turned away. Jesus calls us to turn from from an unbelieving lifestyle and the accompanying sin that ensnares us and to put our full trust and faith in him alone to rescue us from the curse. So to become a follower of Jesus, we offer our life to him in faith and commit to follow him as Lord for all our days. The gospel. The gospel. Paul said, I'm obligated to take that. I'm obligated. I've received so much from God. I've received so much from God. How can I not offer it to others? I'm obligated to, to, to take the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. 
And I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You know what I heard in these last five weeks here at Hillcrest from so many different other people? Not myself, but just from other people. It just blessed me again and again. I heard this in them. I heard the sense of responsibility and obligation. I heard the sense of eagerness and anticipation. And I heard the, that they weren't ashamed. Right? I heard, I heard it in Ben and Jess in the first week. How they just talk about, every time, I love how they talk about, you know, uh, um, bringing Jesus to people and how excited they are about it, how pumped they are, and how it just, it's captured them. I love their, their enthusiasm uh, to bring the blessing of God into the community and to bring the kingdom near to where people can experience it. I love hearing um, these four students stand up here and just talk about how they were committing themselves at a young age to go, to give these, these years of their lives, to go and make themselves um, able to be able to communicate the gospel in languages they didn't know. That so challenged me. I mean, Jesus is worthy of their sacrifice, and we need to be reminded of that again and again and again. Jesus is worthy of radical sacrifice, of uprooting your life, of changing what your plans were. That was powerful. I heard in them their obligation, their eagerness, and how they were unashamed of the gospel. And then I, I heard in Pastor Dave Marr just his eagerness to share the gospel with people. I mean, you know, he says, I just say, I pray for people, and then when they get healed, I just say, this is because God loves you. I just thought, what, an, what a faith, what an encouragement, what, a, what an anticipation. But just the reality of, you know what? We, we believe, he believes God has good things for people. God wants to heal people. And so he just goes into these situations thinking, I'm going to get to share the best gift I could possibly give, and that's Jesus. And, and, um, and then, of course, with Mike and Royce, I heard the same thing again, right? I know what you need. You need to surrender your life to Christ. Does that challenge you? Did that challenge you? I know what you need. I know what you need. Do you know what the world needs? I know what, the, I, I know what you need. You need to give your life to Christ. That is powerful. So simple, so straightforward. But that's faith rising up. That's, that's that God at work dynamic in our lives. I know what you need. You need to give your life to Christ. And then probably the, the kicker, the line that really hit me at the very end of even that Sunday was, oh, and again, those, those three young girls, the teenage girls who were sharing just really openly about what God was doing in their lives. I just love that here they weren't holding back. They weren't ashamed. You know, are, are my friends going to watch this video? You know, stuff like that. It was just like they were just, they were, they've been blessed by God, and they just, the overflow was coming out of their mouths, just saying what God had done. But here's the kicker. This is what I'm going to leave you with today. When I was done interviewing, if you saw that you seriously have not seen the interview with Royce and Mike, that one I would start with. Go watch it. It'll boost your faith. But it got to the very end, and Mike said a line, and I had been circling back on so many of their potent lines through the whole thing and, and uh, prolonging the interview because I just didn't want to miss any of the gold. But this one I didn't circle back on, but I am going to bring it up today. The very end, Mike shared this line, and he just said, uh, talking about, you know, sharing your faith, and he just said, uh, you know, I'd known Christians 
you know, as acquaintances or as friends for much of my life. But he said, I just didn't know they had this gift. I just didn't know that they had this gift. When I first heard him say that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. We have a gift. Do you know that the gospel is the greatest gift? I'm praying that that will grow in us. That will grow in us. That we realize we have something to offer the world that the world needs. They need it. They need it. They need it. And we have it. We have it. We have it. I would hate for us to go our whole lives and just sort of be like, and find out, you know, at the end that, you know, have someone say to you, man, you had this gift the whole time? I didn't even know you had that gift. I just got it from somebody else, and you know what? It's changed my life. Here's the visual I want to leave you with. I was just up at my son's um, sort of two-year graduation from, graduation from Bible college. And we're in the last, one of the evening services. And um, my wife and I are on this side of the room, and my son is over there with his college friends. And... Um, and they're just in a group just worshiping God. And, and uh, I must admit that Marnie and I had our eyes open. I'm not sure if you're allowed to have your eyes open or not, but our eyes open. And we just watched our son worship God. And she cried a lot, and I cried a little. There's people in your sphere of influence. I want you just to imagine this. Imagine that someday you're here and you're watching them worship God. You're watching them worship God. What kind of gratitude towards God would you feel? How would that move you to see that person that you love and care about worshiping God to know that God had done a work in their lives? I think it's just the most powerful thing in the world to, to imagine that people who don't worship God right now could get to that point where God becomes their treasure, where he becomes their all in all, where he becomes the song on their lips. He becomes the reason why they do crazy things like raise their hands or whatever. To visualize that now and just to pray into that and say, God, would you help me play a role in seeing that thing? come to be. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you that um, you're on mission in this world. You're at work in this world. And you have uh, people for that mission, the church, people who have come into relationship with you, are deputized as ambassadors of you. We can go into every situation and every sphere of influence knowing that um, uh, we carry the light of you into that situation. 
we can come. We want to come like Jesus. We want to come um, bearing truth, wrapped up in grace, ready to, to love and care and yet to share the thing that will give people hope. Lord, we don't want to write people off. I know we're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Lord, help us to erase the categories that we have of people that hinder us. We want to see people as dearly loved by you, made in your image. We know that our image is all twisted and all of it's been marred by the fall and by sin. And yet, that image remains and you desire to rescue and you desire to redeem and you desire to make people into your sons and daughters, to draw them into your family, to forgive their sins and to lead their lives. And so, God, I just pray that you'd show us the place that we have to play in all of this. Lord, I I pray that there'd be a growing sense of obligation in a good way, not in some sort of weird way, but a growing sense of responsibility and a growing sense of eagerness and a growing sense of not being ashamed of the gospel in our hearts. Lord, just prepare us. Prepare us. And thank you for all the little things you've brought along in these last five weeks to really encourage us in this way. Those are just gifts from you. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, help us to take uh, the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel. And, uh, Lord, I ask for it to shape our lifestyle. I ask it to shape our our priorities. And I ask it to um, be the thing that we herald that we're about. There's lots of other things that define us, but Lord, we want to be gospel people. We want to be your gospel people in this day and in this community. In your name. Amen.